Hi, everyone, and welcome to the spin-off podcast, Virtual Event Stories. My name is Nikki, and I'm the co-founder of Everywhere Plus. And if you've never heard of us before, we are the awesome virtual events platform for people that do good. And we host webinars, conferences, hybrid events for people in the not-for-profit sector to help them reach their audience, engage with their audience, fundraise, upskill their staff, um, and we get to work with absolutely amazing people on their virtual events. Good morning, everyone, or just about good afternoon, or it depends where you're tuning in from. Uh, I know we have some people uh, already from the United States who have tuned in, so it's very early for you. And it's er very early for me here in Dublin, Ireland. Hello, everyone. Uh, thank you very much for joining us today. My name is Simon Scriver. I am your host for today. Uh, and today we are talking about accessibility in virtual events. So if you haven't been to one of these events before, uh, we run these free events monthly uh, here at Everywhere Plus. Um, and it's a way for people in the sector who are involved with virtual events or perhaps put on their own virtual events uh, to come together, learn and focus about a specific topic each month. Um, and then we do a nice little kind of, we go into the breakout room afterwards where it gives people an opportunity to meet each other, to uh, share their own experiences, ask questions uh, from some of our speakers, and just kind of work together to become better at what we're doing um, doing here. Um, now, in that breakout, you don't have to turn on your camera and microphone, so you can lurk at the moment. No one can hear you or see you. Um, the way for you to communicate is in the chat box. So I'm going to show you around before we kick off and get going with our first speaker. Um, but let me just kind of give you a little bit of background uh, about who I am and what I'm doing in case you don't know me or haven't haven't heard of me. Uh, and why would you, frankly? Um, so my name is Simon. That's me. Uh, my background is I'm a professional fundraiser. I've worked in the sector for uh, it's, I think, 18 years now, about 18 years. Um, and I am one of the co-founders, along with Nikki Bell, of Everywhere Plus, uh, the platform you're on today uh, and fundraising everywhere. Um, and just to give you a little kind of background about about what that is, I know some people have kind of been with us on this journey that's gone through. Um, but for those of you who who have maybe never heard of us or this is your first event with us, um, we set up fundraising everywhere um, before the pandemic, um, before COVID. And this was a um, supposed to be a virtual community for fundraisers and nonprofit staff around the world. Uh, and myself and Nikki really kind of set it up um, there are a number of reasons which I'll get into, um, and a lot of them are, were around accessibility. So not necessarily uh, um, um, completely thinking about people with disabilities and, and special needs, although that was a factor in what we set up, but just realizing that so much of the resources and education and training available in our sector uh, and so many of the events that nonprofits that we were working with people on um, were not really accessible, um, whether that's in terms of the technology that was used whether it was in terms of the pricing, whether it was in terms of the travel. Um, myself and Nikki are both parents, um, and it can be really difficult to get to certain virtual events. I live in Dublin. Nikki lives in Newcastle in the north of U the UK. And so traveling and time-wise, it became very, very difficult. And so just all these things came together. And so we set up fundraising everywhere to try and tackle this um, and try and make this education available to so many people. And, and as we started to look at what platform to run our own event on, we, we kind of realized there wasn't a platform for the charity sector that was doing what we needed. And, and as a result of that, um, we kind of developed our own platform called Everywhere Plus, which is what you're watching. Uh, you have the misfortune of seeing and hearing me on today. 
Um, and when we set up Everywhere Plus, it was really um, looking for a few specific things. So we really wanted our platform to be frictionless. You know, we were conscious of things like Zoom, uh, where you have to download software that wasn't always possible for people, um, where there was like lots of logins and lots of passwords and things like that. And we really wanted to simplify the whole system because we knew that um, so many people that us in the nonprofit sector were trying to uh, um, communicate with or trying to kind of share these experiences with, they didn't, um, you know, they didn't have the technology or the expertise or the knowledge. Um, you know, a lot of our donors and supporters we found were, you know, uh, are maybe a bit older or not so tech savvy. And really just in general, one of the hot, one of the big problems that we have with technology in the world is that technology is developed by people who are quite advanced with that technology. Obviously, they have the best, um, um, you know, the fastest computer to build it. They have the fastest internet connection to to um, to get it going. Uh, they have the knowledge and they know how it all works. But then that same technology gets put to people who really have no experience and no knowledge with it and probably, you know, don't have a fast enough computer, don't have a fast enough internet connection. And so all these things we really wanted to kind of scale back and just make it easy as possible. And we knew people who were attending our events were perhaps, you know, we had, I remember in our first event, we had someone who was listening in their car while they were driving, uh, you know, people who were watching it on the bus, people who were accessing it on their mobile and people who were using screen readers and all these different ways that people were accessing and we did accessing it. And we just knew we needed a platform that was more customizable and more suited to these kind of things. Um, and as a result, um, that Everywhere Plus platform that we created, people started to want to use it for their own events. For you know, nonprofits started to hire us to um, put on their their own events, which is where this business has come out of over the last few years is supporting nonprofits um, with that. So that was kind of the history of why this all um, um, got together, um, and and it's been a really interesting learning journey working with lots of different organizations. Uh, to try and you know constantly improve the platform and improve our virtual events so that they were more accessible for people, um, because accessibility has become something that that is you know it's not a nice to have thing. It, it's essential. It's essential if we want to um, um, provide equal access to to our users and to our attendees and to our supporters and and the general public. Um, and it's also just it's the right thing to do in that you know um, this information and these resources and these events should be available to all. And so it's working really hard together to try and make it um, as as accessible as, as as it possibly can. And I think COVID was a really interesting experience as, as we all kind of realized how bad accessibility was um, for a lot of people, you know, even though people had known for years and had been telling the rest of us for years, um, it only really became clear when we started all having to access um, events and access training and access resources in the same way that so many people had been doing so for years. And what became really clear was things like uh, uh, live closed captioning wasn't good enough. Uh, the way that certain event platforms was built was not made for these kind of events. Um, and, and you know, we kind of saw for ourselves how, how much of what we were organizing was nonsense. And, you know, it really, it really amazed me how many uh, charities we worked with who were dealing with, you know, vulnerable people, people with um, uh, mobility issues, people with, you know, who were very vulnerable. And they still weren't putting on virtual events. They had always been putting on, you know, one big flagship in-person event in London, which so many people had been restricted for. So COVID forced a lot of people to try this virtual event and a lot of people stuck with it because they realized, okay, suddenly we're accessing more people in ways that are more suited for them. 
And so it's been a really interesting experience. And so, you know, today what we wanted, wanted to do is get, um, you know, a, a couple of speakers in just to share their own experiences and give you some really, really practical tips. Um, and so we're going to um, um, hear from a couple of people today uh, who are going to chat through all of this. So let me say hello to a few people in the chat box because I can see we've got people joining in and saying hello. Jay McKay, one of our speakers, is here um, already in the chat box, uh, and Emma Malcolm. So they will be here if you want to throw questions at them in this chat box before we go into the breakout rooms. Uh, hello to Hugh um, at the British Red Cross. Who have we got? We've got Ellie and Jess and Karen, Claire. Oh, we've got lots of people. Daniel and Linda. Ah, Alex and Gidas is always here to, to cheerlead, which I love. Uh, Emma, Cara, Lottie, you're all very, very welcome. So just to remind you, you know, please feel free to throw questions and chat amongst yourselves and chat with the speakers in the chat box as we're watching our, uh, our speakers. Um, you will see uh, this, a copy of the slides um, that our speakers have used. Any slides that you use, uh, you'll see a link below the chat box if you want to download those um, to access them. Um, if you do have any tech issues or any questions or anything, then please do feel free to reach out to hello at everywhereplus.com um, and we will help you through it with our pleasure. Um, and also, if you have any questions just in general, uh, feel free to reach out to us to, as a team or contact me. You'll see a book a demo button there, which is linked to my email. Um, so please feel free to reach out to me, Simon Scriber, because I'm always happy to talk about this, always happy to share my own experiences and our experiences, um, but also very happy to learn, you know, um, and I think this is um, a big part of, of um, the clients we work with, you know, whether it's sight loss charities, whether it's uh, charities with mobility or whether it's just general charities who are trying to be really progressive and, and really forward thinking with this stuff. You know, we're always very happy to learn about what we can do better. And certainly we have learned a lot over the last few years uh, and continue to learn and, and to get better. OK, my friends, so let's let's just go straight into the first presentation uh, or the first part of this, the first speaker, um, who is Jessica McKay from Nobility. Um, because basically Jess is going to cover with us some of the um, um, essential things or the basic things that we can start to do in our events, uh, in our, uh, uh, um, you know, in, in all of our communications that we do, um, some of the basic things that we want to start to do. Now, Jessica is Director of Community Programs. I'm reading her job title because anyone who's been to one of my events before knows that I always get job titles wrong. Um, but Jessica from Nobility, and Nobility is an American uh, uh, NGO, American nonprofit. Um, and they work to support the independence and empowerment of people with disabilities by promoting the use and improving the availability of accessible information technology. Um, and Nobility, um, there's a link to them below at the bottom of your event page. Um, they put on lots of training, have lots of resources, and really are one of the best that I've seen out there in terms of the support that can be offered to you. Um, uh, anyone who has these questions or wants to become better in this space, uh, you know, wants to be more accessible for their users, um, um, there's, they've got some really great resources, really great, great training courses, and they're just lovely people. Um, and so the first thing we're going to do is we're going to head on across to, uh, Jessica, um, and Jessica is going to chat us through some of the basics of this, um, and then we'll come back and go from there. Um, but over to you, Jessica. Everyone, thank you for allowing me to be here today. My name is Jessica or Jay McKay, uh, and I am the director of community programs with Nobility. Um, and I'm just very excited to talk with you today about how to make your virtual events accessible. So before we begin, I'd like to briefly introduce you to Nobility. We are a nonprofit organization that is based in Austin, Texas, uh, but we operate globally. We're founded in 1999 after two years of community collaboration in some projects and events. And our programs and services reflect 
our core values and strong belief that accessible technology is the key to ensuring equal access to opportunity. So our mission is to create a more inclusive digital world for people of all abilities. We wanna make the internet and other digital technologies accessible to people who are blind, visually impaired, deaf or hard hearing impaired, who have mobile impairments and cognitive or learning disabilities. Our goal is to create a barrier-free world of information technology so that people with disabilities can fully participate in business, educational, civic, and the cultural marketplace. And we do that through our work, uh, which we started over 20 years ago through our flagship program, the Accessibility Internet Rally. Since then, through our conferences and competitions, webinars, and shared resources uh, and accessibility solutions, we've really communicated the importance of accessibility to a growing global network of communities and organizations. Uh, and our experts are internationally recognized for their role in creating a worldwide standard for technology accessibility implementation and training. So before we begin about how to design accessible virtual events, we need to talk about specifically what is accessibility or what does it mean for something to be accessible? Um, and that's really a term that gets thrown around a lot and people think, oh, well, because it's here or because I see it or um, it's available, they think that means it's accessible. Um, and that's really not the case, especially when we're talking about with people with disabilities. Um, we need to be a little bit more clear clearly defined in our expectations of accessibility. So here I have taken two uh, definitions of accessibility from the w3.org and from the uh, National Educational uh, Accessible Educational Materials Center um, and combined to really create uh, what I think is a good overarching concept of what accessibility is or what we think about when we say something to be accessible. So for something to be accessible, People need to be able to perceive. Can they hear and see the content? Uh, understand, do they know where to go when they're in that digital space or what they need to do or what to expect when they click on you know, links and tabs? Navigate, can they independently navigate that digital space using their preferred tools? So not everyone is um, capable of using a standard mouse and keyboard. Uh, some people use voice commands. Um, you know, some people for them to um, put their finger to their phone screen is not a possibility. So maybe they have to have some kind of switch access or uh, a switch method. Again, using a different type of device that may act as their keyboard, but not in the um, standard way we might think. Interact. Can they inter independently complete and explore uh, all the areas uh, in that digital space, right? So in Am I designing a space that somebody who maybe has a visual impairment or that physical disability and not able to use a standard uh, mouse or touch a, a screen, um, am I relying on them to have assistance to complete those tasks and to, to explore the areas? And then lastly, it's contribute. Can they fully participate in an authentic manner? Um, is somebody having to refrain from giving me a complete answer on something because they're not able to physically? Or is somebody having to skip uh, a part of the experience because it's not accessible to them or they can't navigate to that space. So we wanna make sure that they can fully participate um, in a way that they truly want to. So now that we know about accessibility, why is it important for us to, to design our virtual events to be accessible? Um, and we wanna start with this number from the World Health Organization, their World Report on Disability in 2011. 15% 
15% of the world's population lives with some form of disability. Um, and that can range from anything from, you know, vision, hearing, physical, cognitive disabilities. Um, it runs the gambit, okay, 15%. Something you need to think about though is several of those people may not actually consider themselves to be disabled as defined by who. Um, you know, think about people with age-related dis disabilities, right? As you get older, maybe you're, you're having some more visual issues um, uh, or hearing loss. Um, maybe you just can't move um, in the manners that you used to be able to move, right? R loss of range of motion. Colorblindness. Um, you know, some people may not consider that to be a specifically a disability, but if I'm on a website and I'm colorblind and I'm asked to locate a specific color or to navigate to a specific color on the page, um, and if I can't perceive that color, I can now not interact with that page. Uh, hearing aid users, you know, um, we run into several times when we're doing our own usability studies. Um, you know, people don't necessarily think of themselves as being disabled, so to speak, because they just because they use a hearing aid. Um, and then the same thing for people with uh, ADHD or dyslexia um, may not think of it in, in kind of, you know, the typical, uh, you know, general sense of what people think a disability is, right? They just don't think of themselves that way. And it's important for us to design for them um, because they're not necessarily going to call out to it. The other reason why we want to design uh, accessible virtual events is because most people are going to benefit from accessibility, even if they don't have a disability, right? Um, the, the first one we always think of is captions. Um, how many of us are currently using captions on all our streaming platforms when we're watching our favorite shows or movies, right? It's just something we enjoy. Maybe we prefer not to have the volume cranked up really high. Uh, maybe we find like we're retaining the information better. Um, I know for some people, they just like them because especially if they're watching something with um, the actors at very thick accents, it's easier for them to comprehend and follow. The next one we want to talk about is cognitive load. Um, and what I mean by that is, you know, uh, as the world has progressed and technology is changing and people are in front of their screens more, um, we get more and more demands on our cognition by the minute, right? We're being asked to do more things than we've ever been asked to do before, to process more information than we've ever had to process before. Um, and so when we think about cognitive load, uh, making sure that we're helping to support all our users and participants, right? In continuing our discussion about designing accessible virtual events, uh, I do want to bring up, you know, what some people like to call Zoom fatigue, um, you know, and, and that can mean different things to different people, depending on which research paper you're reading or, or which coworker you're talking to, right? Um, so we, I just kind of left it as the vague Zoom fatigue discussion. Um, but there's a couple of things to think about when you are designing your virtual events. Um, Remember, meeting platforms are for meetings. They are specifically designed that way. Um, when you're designing a virtual event, that's different than doing a, a staff meeting or even just a, a you know one-time webinar. Um, if you're building a virtual event with multiple sessions and, and interaction opportunities, um, look for those events that are or platforms that are built for those. Um, we're seeing more and more where we're seeing virtual VR. Um, conference spaces or, you know, even with like the metaverse, finding these ways for people to interact um, in these digital spaces in a very different way. And also just um, those platforms where it's much easier to navigate to multiple sessions or to find a way to network with people. Um, so, you know, just being cognizant of, of what your specific needs are and making sure you're finding platforms that cover those needs. 
Next, I want to talk about changing the norms, right? Part of uh, what I think of when people think about Zoom fatigue is um, they think about those, you know, endless hours, especially after COVID, um, where they were just being forced to sit in front of their computers, had to have their camera on, they had to stay in one spot because nobody else knew how to, um, to do it, essentially. Um, and we know better, right? So you can change the norms. This is your event. You can make those expectations whatever you need them to be. Um, letting your participants know they don't have to have their camera on all the time. Um, letting them know, you know, get comfy, uh, find your favorite chair if you need to walk around, maybe finding some some uh, ways to do some movement or some, uh, you know, breaks in your virtual event. Also something to consider is asynchronous participation. So instead of everything having to be live, everything having to be right at the same time, um, finding opportunities for people to receive that content or information um, on their own time or on their own schedule, and then finding opportunities for them to reflect and share what they discovered together. So that could be, um, you know, pre-recording the session, having the presenter available for a Q&A session, or having um, pre-recorded materials and then um, the presenter then, instead of making it a really long session, they give you a, a good front load and then follow up with some final thoughts uh, in their session or just having space for people to network and converse about the information that they reviewed independently. So now that we've got some ideas of why we're doing this, let's talk about uh, a checklist for designing accessible virtual events. Um, this is by no means an exhaustive list. Uh, we wanted to try and give you as many things as we could think of, but at the same time, please recognize um, accessibility is a journey and not a destination. Um, there may be a few things that you latch onto already or you're already Im implementing. Um, and that's great. That's what we want to see. Uh, you know, start where you can and then continue your way forward. Um, technology is always changing. Um, so, you know, there's always something new to think about and something new to consider as well. So, like I said, not an exhaustive list, but we felt this was a good starting, a good starting point. So the first thing we want to talk about is setting expectations and providing instructions. Again, thinking about that cognitive load, making sure that people can get to where they need to um, in the least frustrating way possible. Um, so think about your schedules and your agendas. Are they easy to read? Do people know where to find them? Um, you may think, oh, one this one location is, is sufficient. I say if you can redirect them to schedules and agendas as many different places as possible. Guides for navigation and tutorials. Um, again, you might think, oh, well, everybody knows how to access this platform. They're already there. Um, but again, you don't want to assume the uh, partic uh, your participation or your participant's knowledge level on your different platforms. Um, and plus, you know, sometimes we're just stressed out and we just completely blanked on how to, you know, where the login information is. So having videos or a step-by-step -step instruction for how to log in can be extremely useful for people because then it's just there. They don't have to try to remember it every single time they can review that information as needed. Next thing to talk about is your mute, your camera, and your chat. Um, again, please don't assume everybody knows where to locate these tools. It doesn't mean you need to make it a big, long tutorial right before the start of a session or before every session. But you may want to either, you know, through your videos or your step-by-step, -step, even having a visual cue reminder, um, but just briefly review where to locate these tools. Or at the start of the session saying, okay, we're going to take um, questions through the chat. You're going to locate that. It's going to look like this little icon down in the lower left. Uh, and it's just an easy way to make sure everybody's ready. And then 
uh, with that as well, reminding participants how they are expected to participate. Um, do they have to have their camera on? Do they not have to have their camera on? Um, do, does the presenter want them to type questions as they go, or do they want to wait till the end? Is it okay if people just jump on the mic? Um, so again, just letting them know before you get started. Next, we want to talk about accommodations for participants. Um, so you want to inform your participants of what accommodations or accessibility features are going to be automatically provided or included in that digital space or, or event platform. Um, and we just provided a couple of examples. Uh, I, to me, these are kind of like your, your baseline, you know, very, very baseline. Auto captions. Um, that we'll talk a little bit later about the different types of captions that are out there. But almost every single platform now has some form of auto captions. Uh, and you need to make sure that people know, hey, we're going to use auto captions. Uh, they will be available through this platform. Uh, also, what we find to be very useful is to make sure that people can access materials in advance. Um, and the reason why you want any handouts or, or things like that to be available to your participants is, A, it prepares them and lets them know what, what that session is going to be about and what to expect. Uh, but also, we have some participants that may need to um, you know, load that uh, file into like their Braille note, which is a way that it converts, um, it will take text and they can convert that into a Braille file. And then that Braille file is digital, but it comes into a, a Braille note or a Braille reader and it will um, allow them to access the content that way. Um, so you wanna make sure that they have some advanced time to do that if necessary. Next, you wanna provide a way for participants to maybe make additional accommodation requests. Okay, now um, this is going to be based off of your organization and what you're able to provide. Um, but if you are able to provide them, let them know that they can make those additional accommodations. Um, this could include uh, if they need materials provided in a specialized format, right? Maybe they need something specifically converted to um, a Braille document, or maybe anything if you're only providing PDFs, maybe they say, you know, PDFs are really hard for me. Can I have this as um, either as the original PowerPoint or as uh, document. Uh, ASL interpretation services. Um, does somebody need American Sign Language instead of just relying on captioning? And then lastly, live captioning. So this is, you know, human transcribed or art services uh, where somebody is actually hired. You are paying them, um, depending on their rates, uh, you are paying for them to type as the presenter is speaking or as people are speaking. And those are the captions that would appear at the bottom of the screen. Okay. Um, if you are providing a way for them to make additional accommodation requests, make sure you indicate a deadline. Um, the reason why is really to help prepare you and to make sure that you have um, what you need in place. So most service providers, so again, the ASL interpreting or live captioning, or even if you need to do some material conversion, um, those service providers are going to need to know in advance. Um, in our experience, most of them need at least, at the very, very least, three days. Um, if you're needing multiple service providers at once, though, you're going to need to bump up um, the amount of time. And so that's just so they can pool their staff and make sure um, they have enough on hand. Next, we want to talk about good design. Um, and when we talk about good design, we're looking at it from the idea of your slides, your handout, your media, website, you know, email communication. Um, we're not gonna go through every single possible thing that you should be looking at when you're creating um, these materials, but we do just wanna highlight some things that we feel um, are either easily missed or, or can be easily taken care of. Uh, so the first one is font size. 
um, most places will tell you nothing less than 12 point. I put 16 because that's just where my brain goes from previous work experience. Um, you know, 16 was always where we started if somebody said they needed larger font uh, in a print materials. 16 was kind of our base place to be. So for me, I always started at 16 for my font size. Typeface, right? Am I using Comic Sans? Am I using, um, you know, Times New Roman? What about Arial? Um, over the years, because of technology changing, um, what we're seeing in research is there's really no one specific typeface that will um, kind of be your gold standard or this takes care of everything or this one is absolutely perfect. Um, there are several that will do just as well as the others. So, uh, but however, some things to think about with typeface is you want to avoid complexity, right? So, um, you know, think about, is it really super swirly? How, how easily readable is it? And especially thinking about somebody who maybe has not seen that text or that content for the first time, right? Th those are kind of how I test it out and say, if you don't know what to expect on this page, can you either easily perceive and read it? Um, also, um, when avoiding complexity, think about how many different types of typeface are on that one sheet or that one handout or that one slide. Um, it's not to say you can't have multiple typeface, but again, just remember that's cognitive processing for me to perceive a different type of typeface every time you change it. Heading structure. Um, so I don't want to go too far into the weeds, but um, when people are looking at things like a PowerPoint slide, or into a document and they, you know, we're talking about things that say like page title or heading one or heading two. Um, you wanna make sure those structures stay in place uh, because if somebody's using a screen reader or, or some other type of navigation, they may be more easily able to navigate because they are referring to that heading structure. So they're looking for the page slide or the um, title slide, excuse me, or they're looking for heading one, heading two. Um, that's how they're navigating through the space. Um, so we recommend using templates, especially for your presenters if they're creating PowerPoints. Um, this is a great way to say, hey, look, we've made you this beautiful template and it's going to advertise the event we're at. Um, but when you do that, you've also made sure that it's a fully accessible template that has really good heading structures um, and ask them to keep to that. Otherwise, um, if somebody were to essentially make their own PowerPoint and they just throw in text boxes at random, right, they hit hit text box, put it over here, hit a text box, put it over there. Um, those screen readers don't know which order to read those in because there's no structure anymore, right? So like normally I would have, here's the title, uh, slide title, here's my content, here's some additional information. If I'm just randomly throwing text boxes in, now it doesn't know, am I reading the thing at the bottom first? Should I go to the thing at the top next? Because there's no structure. Um, Next, we want to talk about color contrast. And I, we'll actually have a tool at the end that you can play around with. But again, you know, if you're going to do dark backgrounds with white text, that's great if, or vice versa. Um, short answer is nobody likes gray text on a white background. It's just not fun for anyone. So um, that's kind of the short of it. Good design continued. Uh, so we're going to talk about a couple more things um, in looking at creating these materials. Uh, alternative text for images or alt text. Um, if I were to have a picture on this slide um, and if somebody had a screen reader, um, they would not know what that picture is until I tell them using alt text. So, you know, you right click on your image when you're in your, your PowerPoint and you'll see a thing that says alt text. And that's where you would just type out, you know, um, 
family gathered for a picnic tea, uh, for a picnic under a tree or whatever that might be. Next, we want to talk about descriptive links. So when you're creating your hyperlinks or your links to take people different places, either on your website or on your handout, um, you want them to be descriptive. So a bad example here is this first one. It says to register, click here. Um, and the reason why this is a bad example is if I were a screen reader user, um, it would just take all the links and put them in a list. And if all I see is click here, click here, click here, click here, I don't know where any of those are going. The same thing is if I'm somebody who has a visual impairment or I like to reduce clutter on a page and maybe I just need to zoom in. Um, if I zoom in and all I see is click here, I don't know what that's referring to. So our good example is complete this registration form. So now if I was that screen reader user, instead of click here, click here, click here, I'm going to see registration form, uh, hours of operation, whatever it might be um, that those links are taking them to. Okay. And then lastly, again, we want to talk about videos and their captioning. Um, you know, captioning, uh, we, we always want to have captions. Um, and we'll talk again a little bit about auto captions versus live. Um, but then also think about, you know, are there flashing lights uh, or, you know, uh, very quickly moving images, um, you know, try to avoid those. Um, if you absolutely cannot, you need to make your participants aware that they will be um, popping up on that video. So captions, um, you know, we've said it before, auto captions, that's a good place to start. They're better than nothing. I'd much rather have auto captions than nothing at all. Um, and they are improving. However, um, they're not always accurate. Um, so if somebody uh, is making that request for human captioning or cart services, um, you can always make those available upon request. However, be aware, again, that's a service that you are paying for. So you just it's something to be mindful of. Um, and then also when it comes to your videos, again, we talked about captions. Um, and here's where I'm going to say they need to be edited. You cannot rely solely on auto captions. Um, I know YouTube does a great job of creating auto captions, um, things like that, but you really need to make sure that you're going through. Um, while they may be getting better in accuracy, a lot of times they're not adding things like punctuation, uh, or if you have somebody that is not clearly speaking, they may misinterpret uh, and inaccurately type up some captions. It also does not indicate different speakers, uh, especially if you have speakers that are off camera, that's something you also want to indicate in your captions. Visual descriptions. So um, if you notice, we're kind of getting further down into the weeds, which is great. Like I said, it's always a journey. You start where you can, and then you just keep cruising on down. So uh, so with visual descriptions, um, a couple of things to think about is to describe what's on the slide. So if I'm the presenter um, and I have an image or a chart, um, it's not that I'm reading my wall of text, but if I have that image or chart, I also need to make sure that I can describe that image or what the chart is indicating to people, right? So I'm not just going to say, and look at this image, isn't it great? Well, if I can't see it, I don't know what we're talking about. So being able to describe, oh, look at this wonderful tree uh, where this family is having a picnic. Um, and then also think about when you are playing a video to prepare people for what they're going to watch, okay? Um, there is a way for you to provide audio descriptions to videos. Um, we won't dig into to that just yet, but even just letting people know, um, we're gonna watch a movie clip from you know, Clueless, or um, this is a demonstration of a student utilizing their device in the classroom. Um, just letting them know who are the speakers, what's the environment, just setting the stage, again, letting them uh, prepare themselves for the video. 
uh, user testing. So if you have uh, some ways to test out your platforms, we highly recommend it. It's just a way to make sure, again, everybody's comfortable uh, and that everything does what it needs to do for you. Um, so we recommend having multiple people test the platform. Do not make this up. Well, I created it. I walked through. It was great. You want to include as many people as possible to explore that uh, platform. Um, if you can, maybe get novices to the platform or people who aren't part of that event or who will not be attending later because there's, they have no expectation. They're not going to fill in the blanks of, oh, I think you need me to go there. Um, they're going to kind of be your blank slates and see how intuitive navigating the spaces. Uh, have tech checks with all your presenters um, or as many as you possibly can. And there's a couple reasons to do this. Um, it checks the sound quality for their microphones. Um, you need to make sure everybody is able to be heard clearly. If you're, especially if you're going to do auto captions, the clearer, the better. Uh, human captures really need to make sure that they hear the people as well. Um, and it's just better sound quality, right? So you, that's something you want to check beforehand. Same thing with your presenters, lighting. Um, I know in our most recent uh, event, we had several people that they were like, oh, I like captioning, but I also prefer to read lips of the presenter. So making sure that the presenter is clearly visible, easily seen on camera um, comes into play with the lighting as well. And then lastly, uh, it really just helps also ensure they know how to log into the system before the day of the event. Um, again, you never want to assume that everybody knows how to get in there. Um, you know, do they have the, the right login credentials? Do they know how to access um, their particular room or, or event space? Uh, do they know where to navigate all those tools? You will always want to do that before the day of, so that way you're not scrambling to get them in. So we talked about looking for specific platforms that are built for virtual events. Um, and we want to talk about some things to look for when um, finding those to make sure that they're actually accessible. Uh, again, this is not a complete list, but just some start things to start thinking about as you are exploring those spaces. So of course, auto captions, right? Almost everybody's got auto captions at this point. I don't know why a space wouldn't have them. Uh, but something else to think about in addition to your auto captions is if you know you're going to need cart services for that human transcription, um, are they able to accommodate for that? Will will that work in their system? Okay. Is it easy and intuitive to navigate? Um, how much assistance are you needing from the, you know, the um, event provider or, or the platform provider to explain how to get somewhere? Um, some other things to think about. Now, you may not have anybody uh, that you know personally or, or that you can contact that has um, the ability to use a screen reader or, or you know, can kind of help you understand screen reader compatibility. But that just may be something you ask um, that, uh, again, that platform provider, you know, um, what is your experience with screen reader users? Um, have you run into any issues? Um, some things to think about is like, if there's pop-ups that come up on that platform, does the screen reader, uh, is it notified? Are they easily able to navigate and close out of those pop-ups? Um, you know, and chats are going, how does that interact with a screen reader? Same thing for keyboard navigation. Again, um, asking that platform provider, you know, hey, if I'm, if I can't click with the mouse, how can I close that pop-up or how can I close out um, this notification that, that popped in? Um, making sure that they are aware that those potentially are some needs that they're going to need to address. So as we wrap up, I want to make sure that you have some tools on hand about some of the things we talked about. So this first couple is um, Crackle Docs. And so if you are somebody that uses Google Docs or Google Slides, 
Um, they do have an accessibility checker. It's an add-on that you can um, add to your Google Docs and Google Slides. It is a, a freemium add-on, so uh, it's free to all of the, the tools for a certain amount of time. And then after a certain amount of days, uh, it will remove certain things that you can do. Um, mostly I like it just because it flags, did I miss any um, places to do alt text or did I forget to add um, a slide title for any of the slides? So I find those to be very useful. Uh, Microsoft accessibility checkers are also great. So if you're using Microsoft Office and that suite of tools, um, again, great to flag and let you know what you've missed. Um, if you have bad reading order on some of those slides, you know, what your heading structure looks like. Um, so definitely check that out. I also provided a color contrast checker. So like I said before, you know, test out the, the background to your, um, you know, your slides to your font, uh, making sure that they're easily readable. And then again, kind of getting deeper into the weeds. Um, if you're more curious about, you know, web design and accessible web design, um, there's this great infographic um, that just kind of lays out some things to think about and some quick hits, as well as the w3.org easy checks. Again, kind of helping introduce people into what, what am I looking for when I want to make sure our website's accessible. So we also wanted to provide some additional resources for deeper dives into these areas that we talked about. So the first one is from the National Educational uh, National Accessible Educational Materials Center. Um, and this is their Designing Accessibility with Four. Uh, this is a great read. It's very easy to understand, um, gives you some, some really clear-cut examples to walk away with. Accessible U is from the University of Minnesota. Um, they have it so you can walk through seven core components or skills of accessibility. Again, um, really nice, specific examples um, you know, the do's and don'ts of accessibility. And then the last two are WebAIM and W3.org. Um, again, these are um, what I find to be good resources um, for things like, you know, I explain a little deeper to me about typeface uh, or, or font size, um, or I can also dig deeper into, you know, web design and, and the coding of it all. Um, so again, it could, good resources. So if you're not sure who to trust, um, I find that there are good information sources. And then lastly, we want to invite you to Nobility's Be a Digital Ally. Um, this is a monthly webinar where we review basic skills and principles of accessible digital design. Um, so we just recently started this in February. Um, we, we welcome creator uh, content creators of all levels of, of knowledge from you know, the novice. Uh, maybe you got uh, voluntold or volunteered to run your um, your nonprofit or your church's uh, Facebook account because you have a Facebook account. Um, so you, that's about the extent of your, your creator content knowledge, or maybe you're somebody who is in web design and maybe you're just starting to learn about accessible web design, um, or, you know, somewhere in between. So we want to make sure that it's, it's for, you know, kind of all levels that want to start that journey of accessibility. Um, we've already covered a few topics. We've talked about alternative texts. Uh, we talked about plain language and descriptive links. Um, we just wrapped up in April, our captioning, uh, webinar. So talking about how to caption videos, et cetera, um, we'll have that video and information up soon on our website. And then in June, we're actually going to go deeper into the visual descriptions. So, you know, um, how do we do visual, visual descriptions with video content? How do we do visual descriptions uh, when we're presenting? So please check that out. Um, they're about an hour, hour and a half long. Like I said, they are free. Um, everything's recorded. So if you can't make it live, um, it is available for you at a later date. 
and that's it. Um, it was a lot of information. Hopefully you got some good stuff that you can take away from it. Um, and I want to thank you for this opportunity and we'll see you again soon. Thanks. Thank you, Jessica. That was great. And I've never heard that. I don't think I've ever heard the phrase voluntold before, which I really like when you get voluntold to do something. Uh, that was really good. Um, but yeah, there's, I mean, I think um, Jessica raised some really great points and stuff that's, you know, that's been kind of a, a light bulb moment for me over the last few years in terms of things like, um, what was the phrase Jessica used? I have my notes here. Asynchronous, asynchronous participation. And in terms of, you know, allowing people to access content in their own time in the run up to the live event. Um, and, you know, a big thing for me is, is that we make our recordings available. You know, for example, this session, you'll be able to watch it back in your own time at your own pace your own convenience um using the same link and i think that that's been a big thing which people are still kind of trying to avoid this idea you know we want them in the box we want them to consume it in this way at this time we want them to turn their camera on you know tr trying to make your audience do things that that is not necessarily the way that's that they're gonna best um access this stuff is is really really important i think um, and then, I, I, you know, the other thing I love about Jessica's presentation and just from talking to the team at Nobility is they're very like, um, uh, I don't know if tolerant is the right word, but tolerant that you, you, we're not all going to be perfect straight away. And, you know, through a mix of knowledge and, and cost, we can't all necessarily use human generated subtitles. We can't do audio descriptions for videos all the time. You know, this is what we're working towards to make all this stuff universally accessible. Um, but I think for me, like the important thing is that we are making steps, you know, that you are trying to do these things, that you are asking questions. Um, Hugh made a point in the chat box about, you know, that that we do rely too much on people self-identifying rather than proactively asking. And I think, you know, you know, because of the world we live in at the moment, this kind of online world where we're all afraid we're going to get in trouble all the time. Sometimes we're afraid to ask these questions and just to be kind of vulnerable and, and, and admit that we don't have all the answers. And I think that kind of needs to change. We need to be willing to ask our audiences, ask the people around us um, and be willing to try these things and learn from it and maybe not do it 100 percent right the first time. I mean, I know we've had clients who initially they can't afford live subtitles. And so they use tools like Otter, you know, and, and, and other free basic versions to try to at least get something going and i think that's a really really important approach for us to take is you know just because you're not going to get it 100 perfect uh the first time it, it's not a reason to not try and not do it and not take these baby steps towards being better so following on from that i wanted to um i i invited our friends at the macula society um just to come on and share a little bit about their experience because obviously um, as being the Macula Society, um, um, they work and a lot of their audience are people who are, are um, visually impaired. Um, and so they have to really be on top of it. But at the same time, for them, it's also a learning experience in terms of the switch to the virtual world. So uh, I reached out to my friend, Emma Malcolm. Emma's the director of fundraising and marketing at the, at the Macula Society. Uh, and I just asked Emma, you know, what would what just to share some of their thoughts in terms of what they wish they knew before they kind of got into this journey and what some of their learnings have been and what their experience have been. But they're really, really um, helpful and friendly. And I just, I think, you know, this is one of the advantages we have in our sector is you can reach out to these people and, and just kind of learn from their mistakes and kind of, uh, you know, learn from their knowledge and their expertise. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to cut across to Emma and uh, Emma, tell us, tell us what we need to know. Hi, I'm Emma Malcolm, and I'm the Director of Fundraising and Marketing at the Macula Society. 
I suspect quite a few of you will never have heard of macular disease, but it's one of the biggest causes of sight loss and affects people of any age, although the main type, age-related macular degeneration, is mainly found in older people. These people become very isolated as their sight loss often means they can't drive anymore. So why is accessibility important to our organisation, the people we support and those who support us? As a sight loss charity, we try to ensure everything we do works for our audience, from producing all our materials in large print, 16 point, to, to trying wherever possible not to use PDFs as they're really not that accessible for screen readers. Our website is designed first and foremost to work with screen readers and whenever we do anything we think about how our audience will be able to access it. The reality for us is that at least 70% of the people we support also support us, so we live and breathe what works for them. We're also very clear that accessibility is not just in the digital world. We moved all our support groups to telephone support during the pandemic and we know that many people who could no longer travel to their nearest group now feel much better connected with others in the same situation. So what do we think are some of the positive impacts of better accessibility? Accessibility should be something that everybody thinks about. There are one and a half million people with a macular condition, never mind those with other sight loss or other conditions that need everything to be accessible. Do you know that what works for a sight loss audience will also work for a dyslexia audience? By making everything we do accessible, people feel less isolated, less like they're alone and unable to be supported. We know from the ONS survey in 2018 that over half of all non-internet users were over 75. Those people are our macular audience and also our donors. We need to do everything we can to ensure they can access what they need to as easily as possible. From making everything we do accessible through to providing a connect by tech service that helps people learn how to use technology and which are the easiest to use programs and screen readers. We should also remember that Dorothy Donor probably also has some sight loss, even if it's just needing reading glasses to see. So what do we wish that we'd known when we first started delivering virtual content? Well, it has to be said that we were really late to delivering virtual content. Prior to the pandemic, prior to the pandemic pretty much everything we did was face-to-face, -face, although our telephone counselling service and our advice service are delivered over the phone. We thought that our older population would really struggle with virtual, but how wrong we were. When we ran our conference in person, we reached an audience of about 400, but since running it on the Everywhere Plus platform, we've reached over 4,000. And Everywhere Plus have been on the journey to make our conference accessible with us. From working with Colin and our team, who himself has sight loss, to ensuring voting buttons, etc. work, through to providing a telephone number for those who just can't use a computer so they can join the conference. By making the conference virtual and accessible, we were able to reach so many more people with macular disease. And we've worked really hard to ensure everything works. We have supporters on the day who can tell people and you can help people via telephone if they're struggling to connect. And Rachel in our supporter care team spent 40 minutes last year with an elderly gentleman on the phone, absolutely determined to get him online so he could watch. And she managed it and he was so, so thrilled. We also now run monthly virtual clinics using Zoom, which is much more accessible to people with a screen reader than Teams. And we've also had conversations with the team at Zoom on ways they can make the platform more accessible for people with sight loss. We've learned that you can reach a much larger audience who need us virtually, and we only wish we had done this sooner. So please make everything you do accessible. The people you support and your donors will thank you. And it's really, really easy. 
Thank you, Emma. Lovely. Always lovely to hear from Emma. I do love Emma. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think I think it's really important. Again, you know, even you see the Macular Society, there's learnings as they go along. But I think it's really interesting, Macular Society, dealing with people like Zoom, who you think of being as like, you know, too big and too whatever for us. Um, and still talking to them about ways that they can be better, you know, still um, on the phone with attendees and talking to them about how, you know, how how we can make it more accessible for them. I think that's really, really important. So what we're going to do now is we're going to jump into a breakout quickly. You'll see the breakout button, but I just want to share some kind of final practical steps that I think are important. I think Jessica and, and Emma have both had really lots of great suggestions in, in terms of a practical point of view. Um, but for me as well, I just wanted to add a few things before we go into the breakout. Stuff you can do, I think, to really um, start this journey or continue this journey you're on of, of making your own events um, more accessible. Firstly, I would say try a screen reader. And because this was actually a real eye-opening moment for me, that's, that's terrible, terrible pun and wasn't on purpose. But just in terms of using a screen reader, actually hearing how it describes a, a, a web page that we've put out or describes um, um, tools that we've used. And actually, it's kind of really just changes the way you you understand that screen readers are working and people are accessing your information. So actually putting yourself into that position is a really, really powerful thing to do to learn. Um, do make the steps to do captions, subtitles, sign language, things like that. I mean, when we first started our platform, we actually made closed captions um, a requirement. And we got so much pushback from people who didn't didn't want to pay for it that we actually had, had to get rid of that as a requirement. Now it's back to optional. But that was a real shame because we you know, were trying to be progressive with it. But at the same time, we know that people are under strict budgets and it's just not all possible. But what you can do, do. I've made a point there about um, um, seeking funding and sponsorship. You know, this seems like a cost for a lot of us, a cost that we're already running to tight budgets. But actually, there are real opportunities there to bring in sponsors who cover the cost of these accessibility tools, plus a little bit extra for your own time and for your own organization. Um, but there is funding out there and there certainly is sponsorship out there from companies who want to attach their name into making your event more accessible. So do consider that road. Uh, do consider how people are accessing. You know, um, I've said here you are not your target audience, which is one of the greatest things in marketing communications that you can learn. Just because you don't use closed captions, it doesn't mean that like 80% plus people are using closed captions. Just because you like to watch the recordings doesn't mean other people don't like to be live. Just because you like to have your camera on doesn't mean other people all want to have the camera on. So remember, you are not your target audience. And then just continue to ask and learn. And don't be afraid to ask silly questions. As I, as you see, I always ask silly questions. 